according to his pro- <coughs> excuse me according to his promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells therefore beloved since you look for these things be diligent to be found by him in peace spotless and blameless and grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ we're in proverbs 17 uh we're ready to look at verses 9 10 and 11 12 we'll see how far we can get with it here this morning God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to prepare our hearts for the receiving of eternal truth. Shall we pray? Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness and thankful for the blessing that it is to assemble together. Father, we pray that you would open our minds to the truth of your word. Teach us and feed us, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs 17. Last week we were talking about bribery, and I uh, invited anyone to come and bribe me after class, uh, just if you needed an illustration or if you needed a... uh, And uh, so Shirley bribed me with a book, and uh, that was a marvelous book, and I appreciate that. I read it cover to cover, couldn't put it down. (laughs) Okay. All right. So I think uh, today I, I was tempted to teach a second class on bribery to see if I can collect some more bribes, but I'm going to go ahead and move on. And because we've got to talk about love and we've got to talk about um, blabbermouths, the gossips, those that slander, those that desire to bring people to harm, repeating a matter, separating intimate friends. And that's horrible as that happens. Uh, but he who conceals a transgression seeks love. And you have the right reason to close your mouth, the right reason to not say anything. And it's not because you're uh, manipulating the situation. It's because in love, you want this person to recover. You want to minimize the damage that's done in the meantime, and you want to be a manifestation of grace. And so those are important principles. And we've seen them before. And and so uh, verse 9 then is is a review. It's not the first time Proverbs has brought that up. And uh, so we'll deal with that. There's a lot of things here that are verbal. Uh, Verse 10, a rebuke. That's verbal. And it's a blessing. If you're humble before the Word of God, you want to be rebuked. If you're humble before wisdom, you crave the Word of God that can, uh, if you have understanding, then the rebuke will keep you on the the right path. And it's more effective than a hundred blows into a fool. You can just beat the tar out of him and he's not going to get any wiser because he's just lost in that foolishness. All right, so let's take uh, take this one step at a time then. If I have the proper slideshow up. And we're looking at this. Yes. Bribery works in this present cosmos. It absolutely works. And uh, don't confuse what works with what's right. It works like a charm, we're told. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. And yes, it does work. You can use bribery to manipulate things and to get what you want. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it biblical. That doesn't make it appropriate in the plan of God. Uh, It is an offense against God's essence and His attributes of justice. And we were very clear on that. We looked through those verses uh, last week from uh, Exodus 23.8, Deuteronomy 16.19, Deuteronomy 27.25. The effectiveness of such things for this fallen world is normally undeniable. And all these references to how well it works, not only here, but also in Proverbs 18, Proverbs 21. Even Jesus talks about, he says, you know, the sons of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their kind. 
And uh, there's, there's aspects there that I think that we can glean from Luke 16 and verse 8. The one circumstance, though, that, that you can't buy your way out of or bribery doesn't work is in the case of adultery. In the betrayal of adultery, there's no restitution. You can't pay, pay back sevenfold. You can't, uh, the money's not going to make it right to, uh, to the victim uh, of, the, uh, of the adultery. All right, so moving on from there. That's where we ran out of time last week. Moving on there to point nine. The goal of our instruction is love. But the gossip slash slanderer engineers what I'm calling friendship death. Friendship death. I'm going to coin a new category of death as we have it in the scriptures. All right? Because separation is the definition of death. The concept of death is separation. If it's physical death, your soul is separated from your body. If it's spiritual death, if it's operational death, uh, if it's spiritual death, your human spirit is separated from God. If it's operational death, you've broken fellowship and you're separated from the intimacy of God's Word. Death is always a separation. And so I think I'm, I'm correct in referring to this as friendship death uh, when it says he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. And so you might have the closest of friends, but something happens that drives a wedge in there, and then there's a distance, and then there's a far distance, and before you know it, it's like you're not even friends anymore because uh, this wedge has become so destructive. This issue has killed the friendship. And so uh, we have the principle there. But the first half of the verse speaks about love and speaks about concealing transgression, and that, that is consistent. And, and the motivation for why we don't mention those things, the motivation for why we keep a tight lip about those things is because we want to see the, the brother recover and we want to see the, uh, the, the repentance that can happen. And uh, it's much easier for that repentance to happen if, uh, if you haven't blown up a whole church over, over an issue or if it hasn't spread so far that uh, it really uh, drives the person away more than bringing them before the Lord. Now, like I say, uh, this is not the first time the issue has come up. You might recall back in chapter 10, we had uh, a similar verse here in uh, Proverbs 10 and verse 12. And you might recall this. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Love covers all transgressions. And this gets quoted in the New Testament. This is the basis for uh, 1 Peter 4.8. And this is the basis for, for uh, the application that we're making. And again, love covers all transgressions. That doesn't mean we're making excuses. It doesn't mean we're approving. Because covering does not mean approving. In fact, covering is, is the same language we have for atonement in the Old Testament. The fact that God in His love and in His grace will cover sin so that He can pass over that sin. He wants to pass over that sin in the Old Testament. It's the whole doctrine of Passover. He passes over that sin because He's covered that sin. He's looking forward to the cross where He's going to remove that sin. He's going to take away that sin and provide for forgiveness for that sin in Jesus Christ. And so we likewise, when we cover this is our own atonement application, if you will. This is our own in love covering for a sin that is so that we can pass over and look forward to a repentance, to a forgiveness, to a recovery. 
to, uh, to a growth whereby our brother or our sister can recover from this particular sin issue. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And so uh, by, by uh, but it's not sanctioning it and it's not approving it and it's not validating it and it's not saying it's okay. This is not uh, this is the same love that, that in 1 Corinthians 13 we're told does not rejoice in wickedness but rejoices in the truth. And that uh, we have to be very clear on that. It's not love to tell a sinner that God's okay with his sin because God is not okay with his sin. And I, I trust we're good with that. Uh, of course Paul told Timothy here that the goal of our instruction is love. 1 Timothy 1.5 The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. And those expressions right there should resolve any accusations. If anyone comes to you and says, oh, well, let's say in the instance where you are showing discretion and you are keeping a a, a closed mouth and, and you are... Um, and if someone wants to accuse you of, of validating their sin or covering for them or uh, enabling them so they can keep doing the sin, said not at all. That is not the goal of our instruction. That's not, my motives are pure, my conscience is clear, my faith is, is genuine before the Lord. I am uh, keeping my lip zipped because I want to see this brother uh, recover, I want to see him walk right. And, uh, and so why are you so accusatory anyway? You know, just throw it right back at him and say, how do you even, you know, assign such things to my thought process? I didn't know you were a mind reader. All right. And I know for a fact you're not a mind reader because if you are, you'd be running right now because I have a, uh, an impulse to punch you in the nose. How about that? <laughs> so you're not a mind reader. I can prove that. Anyway, it's, uh, it's a little fun you can have with people. All right. The goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And, and in love, you keep your, your lip zipped and you just you don't go blabbing stuff. What does that edify? What does that accomplish? What motivates that? 1 Peter 4.8 and, uh, and, and this too, I mean, do you notice the, the context this comes in? I mean... We've got conflict, we've got um, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This is a serious passage. It's dealing with serious issues that we are uh, believers in the church age and we deal with the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And so we've got to have sound judgment and sober spirit. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And I find that uh, the, the best thing we can do is remedy our love deficiency so that we can serve one another in a better way. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And that's how a flock holds together. All right. And so uh, we have the blessing there. The flip side, though, is what happens if we just want to run our mouth and we want to gossip and we want to slander? Uh, what does that accomplish? What does that serve? Who are you telling and why are you telling them? 
and uh, as far as that goes. And, and in most cases, what, what gossip's all about is it's somebody who doesn't need to hear about it and for all the wrong reasons, okay? And, and that's just an easy way to tell whether it's gossip or not, okay? I think um, in a sanctified way, if you're bringing a, a matter before spiritual leadership uh, with, with right motivations, then that's, that's a different issue, right? Paul talks about the Corinthians. He says, I've been informed by Chloe's people. Well, there you have it. Uh, and I don't think Chloe is the eternal example of gossip. I think Chloe was rightfully uh, notifying Paul of the, the man of incest, the spiritual turmoil that was happening in, in Corinth. And, and Paul needed to, to, to know about that so he could deal with the elders, deal with the church. It's not gossip if you're bringing matters to spiritual leaders. So, And this too, I mean, we teach our children. You don't want to be tattletales, but you do want to take legitimate matters to the parents if there is something of, of, of great concern related to your sibling, related to something in the family. And so you teach the balancing act there. What's the difference between just being a, a blabbermouth tattletale and uh, which we discipline and we spank and that's sin uh, or legitimately bringing matters to your father's attention. That's Joseph in his coat of many colors and he's reporting into, of the, the wickedness of the brothers and it was taking it to the appropriate legitimate authority who can deal with the spiritual issues uh, biblically. Anyway, so there's, there's that. Um, backing up a chapter you might remember in 1628, Proverbs 1628, wasn't that long ago, at the end of chapter 16, um, a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. And so we have it there. And it didn't strike me in chapter 16 like it struck me here in this chapter that, uh, wow, that separation really is a death principle because that's what death speaks of if you're separating intimate friends. So I apologize for not spotting that in the last chapter, but I'm glad that, that uh, the Lord opened my eyes to see it here. And, uh, and how sad is that when, you, when somebody kills a friendship like that? Psalm uh, 55, 14. Why do some people want to split fellowship anyway? You know, it's, it's the curious thing, I think some people do it just because they're wicked, right? They're just vile people. They don't have any friends of their own, so they love tearing up other people's friends. Or, or they're jealous. They're actually jealous of a particular friendship. And so they try to break that up in, in, as a means of furthering their own end. Or it, it could be anything. But I, I think often, very frequently, biblically, we can defend this, there is something else that happened prior. There's some other event, there's some other circumstance, and it really is now motivating. It's returning evil for evil is what it is. And somebody feels like they've been done wrong, and so now they're going to use the, the tools at their disposal to, uh, to, to get back at somebody. Okay? And Psalm 55 is, is, is just that kind of an illustration. And, um, and it's... Uh, it's verse 14 that, that speaks of this. Uh, and even in the, in the larger context, when David is lamenting his betrayal at the hands of Ahithophel here, he says in verse 12, it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. 
You know, for someone who hates you that attacks you, you expect it and say, okay. Nor is there one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. And this is what it hurts so much because he had fellowship with Ahithophel. They were in Bible class together. They, they um, you know, if you think about it, David was a man after his own heart. So the the list of believers with a spiritual capacity to fellowship in the deep things of, of the Lord with, with David was probably a pretty short list. I expect it was, it was Jonathan, it was the prophet Samuel, I expect it was Ahithophel. I, I don't think there were many beyond that in, in David's generation that could really reach that, that level. It is you, my, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. So what can destroy a friendship like that? Well, I tell you, it can happen. And the slanderer can do it. The the workers of evil can do it. The the gossip and slander and the wagging of the tongue and and all the things. And so there's there's actually an entire conspiracy here that's trying to bring David down, let death come deceitfully upon them, let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. And really what it comes down to, once you do the history on this and you do the background on it, we studied this in the Life of David series, <clears throat> the thing that, that drove Ahithophel to side with Absalom and, and advise in the rebellion against David is the, the Bathsheba episode. We learn when we do the work that that he was Bathsheba's grandfather and that that his son, Bathsheba's father, was also one of David's mighty men. And Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, was also one of David's mighty men. And so the, the tragedy of that adultery and the tragedy of that murder and the, the betrayal that... Uh, and, and we don't know if, if Bathsheba's father was likely no longer still alive by this time... Uh, and so the grandfather really had that protective uh, heart for his granddaughter and, uh, and the issues there. In any event, this is, the, this is the, the horrible destruction that such things can wreak. And, and Satan just craves it. He loves it. He's the slanderer and he's the liar and he's the murderer. And all of these things, when he works his mischief in, uh, among believers, it's just it's, it's horrid. And, uh, and this is what we end up looking at, all right? Friendship, death. How about Micah? Micah 7. <clears throat> Jonah, Micah. It seems like we've gone to Micah a couple times lately. Maybe the Lord is telling me something. I need to get back to the minor prophets again. But. And um, I want to be cautious And, and I think Micah lived in a day and age similar to, to where we are. Um, woe is me. <laughs> We're living in a woe is me generation. I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers, and there is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig, which I crave. And uh, in spiritual terms, we're living in a generation that, that cares not for the things of the Lord. The godly person has perished from the land and there is no upright person among men 
All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. We live in a generation where the Word of God is not honored and everyone victimizes everyone else they possibly can because it's all about getting yours and getting ahead. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. They're ambidextrous in their evil doing. (laughs) The prince asks also the judge for a bribe and a great man speaks the desire of his soul so they weave it together. Maybe that's why we were in we were talking about this with bribery last week. Um, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright, like a thorn hedge. And that's the best of them. I mean, really? What about the mighty cedar trees? What about the mighty oak trees? What about the great men? You know, and, and you know, some of the memes on the internet and stuff, you know, that contrast the the great heroes from the, the greatest generation and the men when men were men and when, when we stormed the beaches of Normandy and all this stuff. And, and so you have pictures of true masculinity and then usually they offset it with a goofy picture of some stupid millennial with a man bun or some kind of a, a soy thing. And it's just they're designed to, to be humorous and I, I, I find them sad. I don't find them humorous at all. But this is what we're talking about. If the best of them is like a briar, if the best of them, if the most upright is like a thorn hedge, then uh, that, that says something for your generation. The day when you post your watchmen, your punishment will come when their confusion, then their confusion will occur. Do not trust a neighbor. And this is what we're talking about in terms of friendship death. And it hits an entire culture. It hits a, a, a society. Do not trust a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. And you think, well, who should I be intimate with? (laughs) Who, Who can I trust? And you notice they don't call her your wife. It doesn't say from your wife. It's just the girl you're sleeping with. Her who lies in your bosom, you know. And that's, again, that's the culture we're living in, our day and age. Marriage is devalued and everyone's just doing whatever. Guard your lips. And so you end up with friendship death on a cultural basis. So nobody's loving your neighbor. I mean, what are you dealing with? No one's loving the Lord their God. No one's loving their neighbor as themselves. You've You've got a society where there is no personal and public wisdom being applied anywhere. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. At least there someone managed to get married. I can be thankful for that. (laughs) A man's enemies are the men of his own household. And this ends up becoming prophetic of of Jesus in his generation. This gets quoted in the Gospels and other uh, applications there. All right? Friendship, death. How about 1 Timothy 5.13? This is a verse that speaks about the dangers of slander and gossip. And what happens if you have a widow that's uh, on the young side of things? You know, my uh, sister was widowed at 30. And uh, God was very gracious and she remarried and he provided for her and 
And uh, so now in her second marriage, she's got a, a daughter and things are good. But it says, uh, and this is a, a long context where we're in, starting in verse 3, we're supposed to honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. This is acceptable in the sight of God. And so this is a biblical application. My deacons are very like-minded with me on this. That we have widows in this church, but we have widows and we have widows indeed. And we have uh, different circumstances whereby we, we have more involvement or we have less involvement. And it depends upon are there children, are there grandchildren, who's, who's responsible before the Lord to be ministering to this widow. And so we have, and just last Saturday actually, when, when Spike passed away, and so we've got concerns for Kay. We're, we're, we're loving Kay, we're praying for Kay. But, uh, you know, her daughter flew in from California. I think that's great. Her son's coming in. That's marvelous. And uh, they, according to this verse, they need to have the lead on that. But if she's a widow indeed, if there are no children or grandchildren, or if the children are unbelievers and hostile to the Word of God, that gets my attention. I say, okay, then, as a flock, we've got a, we've got a duty here, see. Or if they've never married, never had children, we've got a duty as a, as a local church. And so that's described there. Verse 9 says, A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Having a reputation, this is a one-man woman, the same idiom that's used of the one-woman man for the qualification for elders. So she's been a faithful wife. Having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children and shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to put younger widows on the list. For when they, and on the list... What's, what, what kind of list, right? On the list. This is to honor widows who are widows. The honor list. This is the original honor roll, right? The honor list. Okay, this is for support. This is like in Acts 6, the, the serving of bread and the ministering to the widows. For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. So there you go. If the widow is young enough and has those kind of desires and is suited for married life, well then there you go. And so uh, the the worst thing in the world is for her to take a vow of service to the Lord and then regret it because she is so young and she has these urges and she wants to have a baby or whatever else is going on. So, and while that happens, they set aside their previous pledge and uh, now they're violating their ministry as widows. And then, worst of all, is this gossip issue in verse 13. They also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, that's bad enough, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. <clears throat> And the the destruction that happens there, the gossip, the slander, the uh, talking about things not proper to mention, rather than love covering a multitude of sins, this is just going to be driving people apart. It's going to be breaking up families. It's going to be causing destruction. 
And so he says in verse 14, Therefore I want the younger widows to get married, bear children. Now, I don't know how a 60-year-old you know, is going to bear children, but under 60, if they're young enough to still be having children, then get remarried, have children. <clears throat> Keep house. Give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Anyway, feminists hate this verse and they think we want to keep everyone pregnant and barefoot and, and whatever as if housekeeping is, a, is a, uh, uh, an inferior, demeaning, insulting, enslaving, wicked thing and, and blah, blah, blah and whatever. Anyway, it's just, we get it. We understand that God has a standard and the world is different from God's standard. All right. Some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And there it is. In verse 15, it's just blood. All of that busybody, house-to-house gossip stuff in verse 13, that's all motivated by Satan. And it's spelled out like that there in mention of the enemy in verse uh, 14 and Satan by name in verse uh, 15. All right. It closes then in verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, how about that? Not just a mother could be widowed, but she could have daughter widows. She must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. That's the thing. We prioritize what we do based upon this criteria. <clears throat> All right. I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> the goal of our instruction is love, but the gossip slanderer engineers friendship death. Moving on to verse 10. Back to Proverbs 17. Now verse 10. It's got an A part and a B part. A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Well, wisdom and understanding prepare the humble to respond to rebukes. We have to learn how to respond to rebukes. We learn to like rebukes. We like them while we don't like them at the same time. <clears throat> but you have to be prepared to receive it. If you're carnal, you're not prepared. If you're in fellowship, you might be prepared. Okay, But you've got to be humble. And that takes the Word of God. And that takes being transformed by the Word of God. So, preparing the humble to respond to rebukes. And we've got verses that speak to that. That responsiveness is such that it outperforms a hundred blows to the fool. The fool is not responsive at all. And maybe a hundred blows will get through him, maybe not. Maybe two hundred blows will get to him, maybe not. How many blows will it take? You might kill him. It might be the number of blows is sufficient to kill him before the number of blows is sufficient to wake him up. Depending on how hard-hearted he is and, and how darkened he is in his, in his rebellion. Alright, so that's the recognition here. Is this is a better than proverb, it's a more than proverb, similar to uh, the, uh, the bear uh, and her cubs that we get to in verse 12. That's a better than or a rather than proverb. This one too, better than, more than. The rebuke for the, the humble is, is much better than the hundred blows to the, to the fool. Much more effective. All right? And like I say, these, these, 
these practically preach themselves, don't they? I mean, it's, it's kind of self-evident, self-explanatory. That, um, and if you you know, if you know people, or just think about yourself, when have been the occasions that the rebukes have really worked in your life? And when have been the occasions where the rebukes didn't work because they just made you matter in anything, and you wanted to go tell so so and so whatnot? Okay, so you've had those occasions. Or uh, maybe you've had different children that have responded to rebukes in different ways. Or you've had, we, we get this. It preaches itself. We know this. We know that there are souls that are ready to be rebuked. And they will learn from the rebuke. And they will be thankful for the rebuke. They will, I didn't put it on the slide, but in, in, in Hebrews 12 we're told they will be thankful because the rebuke trained them. The discipline trained them. All right, back to Proverbs 9 in the parental wisdom portion of the book. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. I mean, if you realize this is just a scoffer in open rebellion, you know, the fool who said in his heart there is no God, the scoffer that rejects anything the Bible has to say, why would you waste your time rebuking him, giving him a Bible verse? That's pearls before swine. Jesus said don't do that. Proverbs says don't do that. You've got you to realize there's a time to speak and a time to stay silent. And, and if you have wisdom, you'll know which is which. Do not reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. On the other hand, reprove a wise man and he will love you. And that's the beauty of it. Because the scoffer needs about a thousand different rebukes and he's not going to accept any of them. The wise man doesn't need nearly as many rebukes. Occasionally, something will come up. There will be a, a weak moment or there'll be, a, there'll be something. Everybody, I don't care how wise you are, there's a hang up or there's an issue. And so when the occasion arises, as rare as it is or, or infrequently, but when he needs the rebuke, he is a man of wisdom. He has a reverence for the Word of God. And when you give him that Word of God in that rebuke, he's going to respond to it. That's what this verse promises. He will love you for it. He will appreciate. And he'll come back and he'll say, you know what? I needed that. And you love me enough to tell me that. See, when Fred Mailer told me that I was a rebel against the Lord and I was a disappointment to my parents and I was wasting my life, uh, I was... 18, I didn't like it. But he was right. He was absolutely right. And then he went to be with the Lord and I wasn't able to tell him how much I love him and appreciate what he told me that day. So I'll get to heaven and he's one of the first people I'll be looking for when I get there. All right. So that's Proverbs 9 8. How about Proverbs 19 25? Strike a scoffer. And the naive may become shrewd. It actually may not benefit him at all, but somebody else can be watching that and go, ooh. <laughs> okay. I don't want that. Reprove the one who has understanding and he will gain knowledge. Again, there's a place for reproof. We're commanded, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's Second Timothy 4.2. This is why shepherds if, if a pastor of a church avoids this, 
he is hurting his flock. Because the sheep need to be uh, disciplined. They need to be corrected. They need to be reproved. Don't be an ear tickler. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and by His kingdom. All of these things are called to witness for this, uh, this ordination charge. Preach the Word. Proclaim it. Be ready in season and out of season. And then look at this list. It starts with reprove. It's the first item. Doctrinal believers don't want to include it. They want to make the last item the first item. Just give me the teaching. Give me the doctrine. Well, doctrine comes at the end, but reprove, rebuke, exhort with literally all patience and all instruction. The idiom there, pos, is translated great patience and great instruction, but literally it means all. All patience. When do you run out of patience? Never, because it's all patience. When do you stop teaching? Never, because it's all instruction. You've got 1,189 chapters, 33,410 verses, or whatever it is. Yeah, just, have you taught it all yet? Then keep teaching. <laughs> okay? Keep teaching. Have you taught it all yet? Keep teaching. Even if you have taught it all yet, teach it again. You know, nobody's going to get it all the first time. Teach it again. Keep teaching. It's all patience and all instruction. But in that teaching, look what it, it, it delivers. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Those are hard-hitting messages. Because the fact is, is that we're saved by the grace of God, but we're still sinners saved by grace. Every sinner saved by grace is, first of all, a sinner. <laughs> okay, And saved by grace doesn't mean they stop sinning. It means they need to be learning the Word of God and transform their thinking, to transform their being, to hopefully, uh, you know, be sinning less and less. But honestly, the more they grow, it doesn't diminish the sin issue. It just increases their capacity to recognize more sin issues that they never spotted when they were children. The older I get in the Lord, the more I'm recognizing, wow, that's a sin of omission. Wow, that's a sin of, that's a mental attitude sin behind the overt sin. And you start recognizing some deeper things that when you're growing, when you're a babe in Christ, a lot of that stuff, you're just oblivious to it. You don't even realize but then the more you learn, the more you grow, you get under better convictions, you get under more comprehensive things, and you go, you know, I'm, I gotta, the Lord's working on me, and the Word of God is roughing off, marking off these rough edges, and, and then you have it. So be thankful for the rebuke. Let me grab the Hebrews text, because I mentioned it, it's Hebrews 12. All discipline seems for the moment not to be joyful, but sorrowful. That's Hebrews 12, 11. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so be thankful that uh, we have a loving Father that disciplines us like this, that rebukes us like this. If, uh, if your Father never rebukes you like that, then uh, if He never uh, corrects you, if He never tells you that's a stupid thing to say, quit saying that. If He's not, if He, then, you know, if He just releases you to whatever, that's a father that doesn't love you. A father that doesn't care. Alright, so wisdom and understanding prepare the humble to respond to rebukes. That responsiveness 
is such that it outperforms a hundred blows to the full. And uh, not only do we have it here in Proverbs 17.10, but it, uh, the concept gets restated in Proverbs 27.22. 2722. <laughs> oh, I tell you. Though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain. That's rough. <laughs> Yet his foolishness will not depart from him. I mean, there are some that are so lost in that foolishness. They're gone. It's a lost cause. It's a, there is there is nothing you can say. There is nothing. There is no discipline. There is no pounding. But by the grace of God, He's never coming back. And uh, yeah, you recognize it. Then we've got um, verse eleven. Proverbs set back to Proverbs 17, verse 11. A rebellious man seeks only evil, so a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Wow, here's a verse. A rebellious man seeks only evil. We reach a point, and all of these I think are touching upon this, the, um, somebody that can withstand a hundred blows, somebody that's that deep into their rebellion, somebody that's in that defiance against the plan of God, you've just reached Noah generation level rebellion at this point. When an individual reaches days of Noah level of personal rebellion, the discipline is an angel of cruelty. Yeah, this is a, this is maybe the scariest verse in Proverbs. I don't know. This, there's a lot here. The cruel messenger, the Hebrew language, uh, the the word there is the word for an angel, a malach, the angel, an angel of cruelty, even the angel of death. But here's the angel of cruelty, and this is what's sent. This is what, in the permissive will of God, has been assigned against the person. So, how far, how far do you have to go to reach this? Well, it says he seeks only evil. This speaks of a non-stop, continuous, never-ending, never-an-exception reality where they are completely given over. And I think it's days of Noah type evil. It's Genesis 6-5. I think it's Romans 1, that third giving over. I meant to put that on the slide as well and I failed. So we'll add it here this morning. Genesis 5 and Romans 1. It is a days of Noah level of personal rebellion. It's one thing, I mean, and we get into this. So you have an unstable believer and you have someone that, um, that has a besetting sin or they have got an issue and, and they, they fail 100 times a month. They fail, you know, 20 times a day. They're, they're in fellowship, out of fellowship. They're like a, a yo-yo. Right? Up and down, up and down on a yo-yo string. And in fellowship, out of fellowship. That's horrible. There's no stability to that. There's no, there's, it's no long-term growth. But as bad as that is, they're not yet surrendered. They're not yet 
given over. Because the fact that they confessed that sin 20 times that day, I'm thankful that they confessed that sin 20 times that day. They didn't give up on the 19th confession. They didn't give up. They're still confessing. They still have a conscience that is pricked, that is that is affected by the sin, that is responsive to the Holy Spirit. So they've not yet reached this verse. They've not yet reached the blackout of the soul, as Colonel Theme taught it. The days of Noah level, where it's only, only, in that, that exclusive language, a rebellious man seeks only evil. In Genesis 6-5, it's more explicit. It says, in the days of Noah, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And look at how it's described. And that every intent, not most of their intents, not many of their intents, every intent. That's an absolute term. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only, now we just doubled the absolute term, because we had every, now we have only. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Here's our third term. Every, only, continually. There's a threefold, there's a Trinitarian absolute that's being described here. This is what I believe Proverbs 17.11 is echoing, the language from Genesis 6 in describing why God dispatches the angel of cruelty, the cruel messenger. So the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Such that now even God Himself has an emotional response. Sorry that He made man on the earth. Grieved in His heart. At this point, is there repentance? Can there ever be repentance? The answer at this point is a giving over. Either sin unto death, destruction, some wrath application. So, uh, Romans 1. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart, only evil, continuously. Think about the giving over. And there is, uh, there's warnings. And there's um, stages to this. And this third one is no repentance, no recovery. Romans 1, uh, you've got verse 18, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28 are the key verses, and then all the context in between, if you want to write, it's not on the screen, but it's Romans 1, 18, 24, 26, 28, if you want to write those verses down. Romans 1, 18, 24, 26, 28. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, is presently, 
It's not talking about in the future or the hell or the lake of fire or anything for all eternity. It's present tense. It's now. The revelation of God's wrath is now, presently, in time, against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in uprightness. In all eternity in the lake of fire, they won't be suppressing the truth anymore. They're going to be living the truth. They're going to be living the truth of separation from God. But here in time, they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And uh, they know God, they don't honor Him as God. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And this is all the idolatry of our current generation. So notice what happens. God gives them over. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. This is the first of three giving overs. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's the first of the giving overs. Can this be recovered from? Yes, this can be recovered. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them over. Now there's an intensification to degrading passions. Degrading passions. And now, the second giving over they actually learn how to find a pleasure in the degradation. You know, it's one thing if you find pleasure in, in what God has designed to be pleasurable. You know, I mean, sex is designed to be pleasurable. It is a pleasure. But, you, but then you abuse that. You fornicate. You, you abuse that. That's one thing. But now you take pleasure in things God did not design. Now there are practices and things and homosexual uh, things that were not designed to be pleasurable. But you find that you can be pleased with the degradation. And normal people look at that and go, why is that pleasurable? (laughs) I I just don't get it. I don't, my sin nature has not pattern like that. But there it is. All right. The women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. That's lesbianism in verse 26. In the same way men, you got male homosexuality in verse 27, abandon the natural function of the woman. So we get that. Men are designed for women. Women are designed for men. And it's designed to be pleasurable within the bounds of marriage. All right. But here's the second giving over. And uh, God gave them over to the degrading passions. Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You know, it's interesting because in the fornication sins, the lusts of impurity, in verse 24, their bodies are dishonored. And the physiological body uh, consequences of fornication are such. And that's, that's 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 6 as well, that the fornicator sins against his own body. And so there's venereal disease. There's, there's um, I don't call it that anymore, but there's diseases for fornicators. And God designed that. But then in the second stage, not only is it bodily, but it's also in their own 
persons the due penalty of their error. So not only is there bodily damage that's done, but the soul damage that gets done in their persons. They become different people. They become absorbed. And so this is now the culture, the lifestyle, the, the, uh, the personhood when a person is given over in this way. But this too can be recovered from. God's grace can rescue you from the gay agenda, can rescue you from the homosexual lifestyle. You don't have to be that person. You can be transformed by the Word of God until you get to this third giving over. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, notice now, to a depraved mind. And this is game over. This is the third giving over. This is now the mind itself is a mind of depravity. And boy, the long list that comes out of this is the the longest of the lists. Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. You know, this is the thing because you have to become an inventor of evil because you've done every other sin that man has invented. You still can't find the happiness you, you think you deserve. So now you have to invent evil of your own. Let's do something that's never been done before. Hmm. All right. And who comes up with these ideas? Who says, hey, I'm going to lick this and see what it's like, or I'm going to snort this and see, or I'm going to, and, and just, I see more and more stories in the news and think, oh my goodness, if the Lord delays and the rapture doesn't get us out of here soon, what are my children going to see in their generation? I just, I tremble. All right. Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, inventors of evil, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And like I say, this is that language. This is that language now that gets spoken of in in, uh, Proverbs when it talks about the cruelty, unmerciful, the cruelty. God assigns the angel of cruelty. Although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they give hearty approval to those who regularly do them practice them consistently. They view the Ten Commandments as a checklist. Yep, done them all. Repeatedly. And, and thrilled. And uh, it's just horrid. Alright. So add to that uh, Genesis 6-5 because it's only evil continuously. It's only evil. In uh, Proverbs 17-11 it says the rebellious man seeks only evil. That shows the complete blackout of the soul and the total giving over. There is not a whiff of any kind of conscience, regret, repentance. I mean, even even Judas Iscariot had a regret. Even Judas Iscariot had something in his darkened soul that felt bad and threw the money back and, and went out and hanged himself at least. At this point, man, this is, uh, this is something. 
So the discipline is an angel of cruelty. And the language on this cruelty is, uh, yeah, it's ugly. Angel of cruelty. Now, it's not an elect angel, but God makes use of fallen angels who uh, volunteer at the drop of a hat to go afflict a believer. And if God's going to deliver somebody over, like Paul delivered somebody over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul might be saved, uh, when you're given over, deserved or undeserved, Ahab was given over, Job was given over, but it was undeserved suffering. Real quickly then, Proverbs 5.9. How quickly can we get through this? Remember this? The um, This is the young man. You've got to warn your boys, warn your girls, warn all your children about immorality prior to marriage, outside of marriage. And so look out for the uh, strange woman. Verse 7, listen to me, my sons. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. So not only are you avoiding fornication, but you're avoiding those neighborhoods. You're avoiding even the appearance. You're avoiding things that could lead to that. Keep your way far from her. Or, here it says in verse 9, you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Your years to the cruel one, okay? What do you think that's about? Especially now here in this chapter when we learn that there's actually an angel of cruelty. Your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength. And your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Yeah, this, this is gruesome. This is ugly. And the Bible paints it as ugly as it needs to paint it. All right. Now we'll come back to this next week. I thought we'd get through 9, 10, 11, and 12 today. We've got 9, 10, and part of 11. So, all right. We'll see if we can keep up this kind of a pace. I know things have gotten bogged down lately, and I'm working on that. Praying for the Lord to give wisdom and guidance in this Proverbs class. Thank you, Father, for your truth, for your faithfulness. Open our eyes, teach us, feed us. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name I pray, amen.